This is Anger Management, the 60 Hertz podcast about um, adventures in democratic thinking. My name is Georg Dietz. And I'm Karin Pettersson. And today we met with Jochai Benkler, who is a Harvard Law professor and thinker on the Internet. It was inspiring. It was a great talk, um, full of optimism. I needed that this morning. Um, I think everybody needs that in those times. It was a very inspiring interesting talk and he's an interesting person because he's been he used to be very optimistic about um, how the internet would strengthen democracy through um, new people being involved in conversations and today we talked about the fact that these thinkers never really considered this new architecture being hijacked by undemocratic forces and he basically admitted that that was a mistake (laughs) His biggest, uh, I think he's known for the book uh, Wealth of Network uh, in uh, 2006. So we traveled back in time to this optimism and tried to find it for today. And he's still fundamentally an optimist. And another thing we talked about was the big election project that he's been working on, studying the communication and media in this last election cycle in the U.S. Here at Harvard. He's a law professor at Harvard and uh, it was really privileged to talk to him. So we're here with Jochai Benkler. Welcome here this um, cold morning. Um, Good I to have be a, with you. Um, in your book, The Wealth of Networks, which is now a few years old, uh, you argue that the move from a mass media-dominated public sphere to a network public sphere would ultimately strengthen democracy. Can you explain how that would work and why, and more importantly, if you still believe that? So the original claim I made was that there were certain classes of failure of the mass media model that had to do with the relatively elite and centralized ways in which news and perceptions were produced in a mass-mediated environment, Um, In particular, (coughs) an advertiser-supported mass-mediated environment that tended toward uh, communicating a relatively narrow set of views that were consistent with the broad second best preferences of large audiences uh, segmented by advertising needs. Um, I focused particularly on concerns... (coughs) one of which I called at the time the Berlusconi effect uh, of uh, the possibility of people who own media leveraging that power into being able to uh, manage uh, the masses or selling it off to somebody in terms of advertising. Uh, And I was concerned about um, too narrow a range of views uh, being open and and too much... um, Uh, compliance with a narrow range of views. Uh, The claim I made at the time was that by creating networks of information production and dissemination that were responsive to diverse motivations, not only to money and advertising or state ownership and state direction, but also to intensely felt political viewpoints, we would allow for a clearer expression of the range of democratic views and the ability to develop and communicate them. Uh, Outside of the control of the keepers of the gateways um, that are in the traditional media model. I also primarily focused at the time on the ways in which distributing the means of producing information, culture, and knowledge um, (coughs) diversified the range of views that were available, diversified the forms of creativity, diversified the sources of innovation and the drivers of innovation, such that we were getting a more diverse um, um, networked public sphere. Um, What do I think about that today? Um, 
What's remarkable to me is how well the rise of Donald Trump and Breitbart and the Daily Caller fits the model that I described um, 10, 15 years ago, which is to say what you have is an intensely engaged community with views that are fringe and outside what was acceptable to say through the gatekeepers of the traditional media, able to capture attention, identify its agenda, and then transmit it back into the mass media, the public sphere, through the amplification and what I then call the attention backbone created by the small number of high visibility nodes back into the mainstream. So in terms of uh, sociological mechanism, uh, that is the rise of the right. So now the question is, is that better democracy or not? Um, To the extent that you understand the elite consensus of American politics, and if you will, of global North Atlantic politics of the last 40 years, to be one in which the broadly speaking center-left receives recognition for its agenda on universal human rights, cosmopolitanism, gender egalitarianism, anti-racism, but at the expense of accepting a more or less neoliberal framing. And the right more or less accept that its working class components of religion and family values and traditional patriarchal relations are sacrificed in exchange for a neoliberal settlement that allows for broad <clears throat> that allows for broad oligarchic extraction then essentially the elites have on both sides received their most important agenda and working classes broadly who may be more traditional in their patriarchal models and more uh, 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 in need of a protective economic environment were excluded from what was considered the plausible range of views. Now, does that mean that I agree with the xenophobic economic nationalism solution that is being offered by the new American right wing and in that regard the new European far right wing? No, I don't agree with its substance. Procedurally, it created, or sociologically, it actually used the affordances of the network public sphere to turn that from an agenda that couldn't be accessed in the mainstream into an agenda that was. That's dangerous, but it puts an even stronger emphasis, in my view, on the center-left and the left in finding a coherent agenda that doesn't tell white working-class Americans your identity is no good and your work's no good, um, deal with it, which is in a large extent what we have done in the last 40 years. But isn't it interesting that you describe, on the one hand, uh, the technological <clears throat> framework for progressive or anarchistic um, politics. So, so your vision of what technology could do was tied to, I would call it even a value system or, or political philosophy. Um, and I, I agree with the, your description of the, the technicality of um, the right-wing revolution um, um, sort of being supported by the means that you described. Um, but how, 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 do you, how do you personally or, or philosophically deal with, with, this, with this schism that, that all of a sudden every, everybody who thought about the Internet seems to have thought about it from a progressive side? Um, what does it tell you about your hopes and visions for, for the future? Or, or, or why didn't anybody see what was happening really on the right? So, so, uh, so a couple of different responses. Um, th- those are really good questions. Um, <clears throat> We need to separate out what the technological affordances 
of a certain technological trajectory are, how they are adopted and diffused within a population, given the institutional background. When I wrote Wealth of Networks and the decade of articles that preceded it that were folded into that book, um, the only reason I wrote about them was because I thought that it, I, I have a non-deterministic view of how technology plays out. If I thought that technology determined outcomes, uh, I'd be writing about something where you could actually do something about it. Uh, it's precisely because we can do things about how we structure technology that it's worth writing about. So what I was focused on identifying was the ways in which technology affordances disrupted existing institutional, technological, social, cultural patterns. But these are all intersecting systems. And then once there's a shock and they get this, um, disconnected from each other, there are opportunities for nudging them in better directions until they, they, they congeal again. But in any moment of disruption, it depends on who nudges, how powerfully, in which direction, so that the systems can get adapted better or worse. What I wrote at the time was that progressives seemed to be taking advantage of writable web because, and again, now I focus specifically in the United States, because in the United States, the Republicans controlled the White House, the Congress, the court, the churches, AM radio, and they didn't need um, the writable web. And so the very first generation of writable web technologies were uh, much on balance, uh, enabled progressive voices. That, I think, confounded a lot of observers to believe that there was something inherently progressive about the technologies, as opposed to that there was something about the structure of power at the moment that Writable word, uh, Web emerged in 2002, 3, 4, uh, that was then uh, uh, conducive to a right-wing agenda setting. And the web opened up for a more left agenda setting. 2008 came along. The Great Recession and the great shock that brought down the sense of stability of the neoliberal uh, uh, um, settlement was destabilized. At exactly the same time that not only did a Democratic president get elected, but he was black, sort of a direct identity threat to the right. And so if you look at the election study that we've been doing at Berkman Klein uh, since the election, the overwhelming majority of right-wing media are media whose, the oldest among them are 2007, but they really come into uh, activity in 2008, 2009. Most of them are 2008, 9, 10, and even just this new election. So what you're getting is the same set of technological affordances now being used uh, to overcome the sources of power uh, or, or the, the traditional models or, or silos of power to raise the right-wing uh, perspective. Um, and <clears throat> to the extent that you think that a system that successfully amplifies views that are outside of the mainstream is progressive, uh, this is progress. To the extent that you have a clear normative commitment to there being a core set of elements that make a democracy a democracy rather than uh, uh, shifting into a more authoritarian or non-liberal democratic model, uh, we're seeing a tremendous threat to democracy. From within my normative uh, viewpoint, yes, we're seeing a threat to democracy. But the threat is emerging from the uh, same uh, structure that enables both good outcomes and bad. The radio in the 1930s allowed, or 20s and 30s, allowed for leaders to reach over the heads of newspaper editors and talk directly to the people. Whether that was used for 
fireside chats by FDR in order to create enough solidarity to create the New Deal, or whether it was used as the people's receiver in Germany, depends on the background political dynamics and yeah, culture. But, but one question. Uh, it seems that at that point, at least Walter Benjamin or other theories, th th thinkers saw the potential for totalitarian use of that technology. And, and I don't want to pin you down personally, but, but the failure in seeing that, isn't that troubling? The failure in seeing it... Uh, in the, in the <coughs> Internet, the, the, the totalitarian potential in, the, in technology. I certainly did not see it. Um, I don't think that uh, many of us did. I think there was a... There was a... Uh, one component was that particularly in the 90s and the early 2000s, there was a very strong libertarian and anarchistic, both left and right libertarian, if you wish to call it that way, uh, streak within our thinking about the net uh, that um, is best captured, presumably, by John Gilmore's Internet uh, interpret censorship as damage and routes around it. Uh, I think we didn't take, let me not say we, I, um, I didn't take people's capacity to herd around destructive messages uh, as seriously as I ought to have. Uh, but I think, you know, people like Neva Elkin Koren, for example, were talking about the concern with mobs as early as 2001, 2002, while completely buying the empirical correctness of the possibility of working around. Um, so um, I wouldn't say no one saw it. Uh, I certainly think that Wealth of Networks was uh, much too sanguine about the possibility that um, things could go very wrong once you remove the structures of um, authority about stating what is true and what isn't true. Um, I'd say I started to get clear signals of the difficulty um, when, for example, another Berkman Klein colleague of ours, Nagla Rizk in American University Cairo, began to do studies of the Arab network public sphere after uh, the Arab Spring and saw the extent to which it had moved from the relatively open blogosphere of 2008-2009 to a much more centralized Facebook structure uh, in 2011-2012 as essentially the state and the Muslim Brotherhood understood the power of Facebook and showed up there. And, um, <clears throat> and that, I'd say, of all of the studies, that's the first time that I personally saw an inversion of uh, the structure and a reconcentration. Um, so yes, I think I certainly missed the scope of the threat that um, populism unmediated by um, elite power in points of in, in points of communication can exert over a population. Um, one more question, and then we um, might go on to the election project, which is new and central to, to our, I think, understanding um, of, the, of the present situation. But I, I wanted to go a little, even a little further back in time, uh, or stay in this beginning of the 20th century moment, because I think, well, for me, it's, uh, I keep thinking about futurism and the way futurism uh, was so... Uh, optimistic and open and anti-elite, which is a really troubling term now. I think the terms elite and mainstream are basically uh, burned, but that's another uh, conversation uh, if, if we should come up with new terms because they are appropriated by, by Trump. So, so I found this quote by, by David Clark, which is in a way this, the, the solution to the problem at the same time. He said in the early 90s, we reject kings, presidents and voting. We believe in rough consensus and running code. You can go any any direction with this with this um, set of beliefs, right? So, I think I use that quote uh, uh, now quite often. I think 
we are <clears throat> at a moment of genuine crisis in democratic capitalism. It is not only an American phenomenon. It is clearly a European phenomenon as well. Um, I think it is uh, the collapse of 40 years worth of market-oriented solutions that overstate the clarity or information quality of markets and in practice have allowed for dramatic extraction of income and wealth by a very small portion of the population in a way that has generalized economic insecurity very forcefully in the United States and the United Kingdom and uh, somewhat more remotely uh, in, in the more social democratic parts of uh, Europe where it seems that identity threat uh, uh, is even more powerful than economic insecurity. I think all these trends emerged in the 1970s from an epistemological crisis where the Weberian model of knowledge that you then saw replicated in progressivism, you saw replicated in Keynesianism, and the idea that you could identify a narrow enough set of information that with sufficient expertise by a group of core experts could be translated into planning, whether it was planning in the state or planning in the company. If you think of Schumpeter's um, uh, analysis of large-scale organizations, the view that uh, organized in hierarchical forms around the theory of knowledge that you could simplify the processes, Frederick Taylor's scientific management, you could si simplify the processes of social life enough to be knowable with a sufficient level of expertise. Hayek's critique that life was too complex and you need a decentralized mutual adjustment by people not under control was fundamentally an epistemological critique. And when the great inflation crashed the economic system, following a decade in which the left itself was criticizing the foundations of knowledge and the foundations of expertise and exposing the role, and, and critical analysis was exposing the role of power and manipulation through these traditional systems of knowledge. While at the same time, the neoliberals were setting up the Montpellerin Society and, and, and pushing for the emergence of the neoliberal think tanks, uh, the law program at Chicago, the political science program at Virginia, and criticizing the same foundations that the left was criticizing on the basis of inegalitarian structures, the right was criticizing uh, on the basis of uh, free markets. And so when the bottom fell out and the great inflation shook belief in these uh, uh, institutions, um, the right was there with an answer that the left didn't have. The right was there with the answer, the market will take care of it all. And we reorganized our institutions around this epistemology of market signals. As long as we keep them clear enough, we lead to optimal uh, social arrangements. This largely collapsed in the Great Recession. But what we don't have is a clarification, and here I come back to David Clark's statement, what we don't have is a clarification of what has emerged as an alternative. And I think, and this does bring us back to wealth of networks, I think what emerged beginning in the mid-80s, but really the 90s, is the idea of the network as an epistemological mode. If you want to find intellectual roots, you need to go back to C.S. Peirce and communities of knowledge and his pragmatic uh, uh, and his pragmatism, not the neo-pragmatism uh, uh, of the 80s. Um, but really, if you look at things together, so you see, for example, in innovation studies, uh, Woody Powell's work on learning networks was central in this. 
Uh, if you look at uh, Lynn Ostrom and the Ostrom Commons School that identifies local communities of practice with their particular local knowledge, developing better knowledge. If you look at Dave Clark and the Internet Engineers and the idea that out of a diversity of people operating out of a diversity of interests, practically trying to uh, solve, that's where you get knowledge. You essentially get, in the course of the 90s and 2000s, an emergent alternative epistemological framework that says we know through experimentation, we know through communities of practice, we know through relatively open play uh, what works and what doesn't work, and that's what we should be oriented towards. What we don't have at the moment is a political economic theory that allows us to design institutions that are responsive to the failure both of command and control and of perfect or so-called perfect markets, and instead tries to work with these models of network learning and load balance between what planning is particularly good at, what networks are particularly good at, and what markets are particularly good at. So that, to me, is the great intellectual challenge of the coming decade. Uh, what is the replacement of Keynesianism and neoliberalism that is not economic nationalism? Because the economic nationalists have an answer. It may be immoral, it may be wrong, but it's an answer. And the question is, how do we synthesize what I think of as the open social economy, a genuinely alternative um, uh, intellectual structure for understanding how we organize our affairs once we understand that planning systematically cannot go all the way and fails, once we understand that markets can't go all the way and fail, and once we probably should understand it, if nothing else, the conversation that we started today around uh, the failures of the network public sphere, that we don't believe in King's presidents also sometimes fails. So we have these systems, all of which are imperfect, and we need to integrate them into some model that emphasizes diversity, practice, revision, resilience, and robustness to change, rather than optimization. So I, I largely agree with you on your um, description of um, uh, neoliberalism and the crisis of the left. And I, it's, I think you're right in describing... Um, you can't describe what's happening in the on the internet or with this rise of right wing propaganda and not uh, connect it to what happens in in the rest of the world and the in terms of economic policy. But my question, I guess, is because we're kind of far away from you know um, having an idea about new institutions and having an idea of you know what should replace states and the the nation states. But at the same time, we have to have an idea about how to fight. The, the rise of this um, well, extremely well-funded, very well-organized, um, you know, propaganda makers that are hijacking the the, uh, the public discourse. So, what do we do now? Uh, you know, the next what, three years or five years, while working on, um, on on you know new structures for economic thinking. So, I think the first thing we need to do, and this perhaps comes uh, uh, much closer to the very immediate research that I'm working on on the election, uh, is we need to understand that we're operating in a environment that is rich in disinformation and propaganda, uh, that has its own independent pathways to its population. And the question then becomes, uh, who responds and how? I'd say the most... So, so let's back up. Right after the election, this whole fake news uh, uh, meme exploded from a BuzzFeed story um, that mixed up two completely different uh, problems. The first was the fact that anybody, and this kept coming back with the 100 sites created by Macedonian teenagers, which was another BuzzFeed story, anybody could just make stuff up publish it to Facebook, get advertising revenue, and that that somehow was the source of the epistemological crisis, that somehow we didn't know what was true because of the Macedonian teenagers. One clear finding from our study. 
subtle results. Still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulties swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. This is the election. This is the election study, which is uh, uh, which essentially looked at over two million stories. Uh, published around the topic of the election in the 18 months leading up to the election. And that allows us to analyze what was most Facebook shared, what was most Twitter shared, what was most clicked on on Bitly, what were sites that were most uh, uh, viewed on uh, uh, by page views and a variety of other metrics that we can analyze the text and the linking practices and the sharing practices. And we have a lot of very rich information about these um, uh, more than 2 million uh, stories, more than 25,000 news sources. The fake news in this uh, trivial sense, somebody sat down, made total nonsense up, and got advertising dollars is a peripheral phenomenon. Uh, Even within the top sites that did, in fact, get a lot of Facebook sharing that that, uh, uh, BuzzFeed found Correctly, and I don't dispute anything they, they found in terms of the number of Facebook shares. Um, the most important, uh, 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 the most important of these stories were deeply integrated into a uh, network that had Breitbart and Daily Caller and Gateway Pundit and Infowars at its core and Truthfeed at its core. So. What you have is much less a discrete intervention by some outsider who's motivated by profit and much more a mutually reinforcement network of sites that have a shared set of themes, chief among them that all sources of media outside that right-wing network are biased, are lying, are corrupt. And so you have a clear set of messages. The first message which they successfully introduced into the debate and actually shaped the agenda of the election was that the biggest problem was immigration. And immigration meant Muslims and terrorists and criminals and disease rather than necessarily Latinos and undocumented uh, and dreamers. And so they shifted the agenda to immigration and to a particular identity threat mode of immigration that I think is probably familiar, very familiar in Europe. Um, The second thing they did was to emphasize the scandal aspect of Hillary Clinton rather than any of the substantive issues. So they succeeded in, and this is a critical move, They succeeded in getting the whole environment, not just their own portion of it, to talk about Benghazi and the Clinton Foundation and the emails as though they were real issues that really were as important as jobs or trade or any of the substantive issues. So what you got was a move to jam the transmissions of the mainstream or the traditional media by saying they were no good and an ability to draw them into focusing on the scandals rather than on, uh, or in most cases on the so-called scandals, uh, rather than on the um, actual substance. So the first thing we need to do is to diagnose. What you get here is a well-defined sub-network that is quite insular and very separate from the center, the center left, and the right. One thing that comes out very clearly as we do network analysis of the pre-election debate 
is that there's a well-defined far right. During the primaries, it's not quite well-defined. There's a period where Fox News is quite closer to the center because it's supporting Rubio and being completely castigated. Reading Breitbart on Fox News in February, March, and April is every bit as vicious as reading Breitbart on CNN in July uh, or August. Um, Eric Erickson at Red State in April and, and in March and April is clearly separated them, and you see it in the monthly maps very clearly. Uh, but once the primary is over, the right wing folds underneath and essentially becomes a subsidiary of Breitbart, with Breitbart exercising major gravitational force on the attention in the right. Um, and the center, and in this case, what happens with the Wall Street Journal is it becomes a center publication. So it's no longer a center-right publication in terms of who quotes it or who tweets it. It becomes squarely center. And this is defined as? Center-left is defined by, uh, we have found a particular measure based on retweeting practices that offers us a very robust way of predicting attention or, or describing attention from the left, the center, and the right public, or rather the share of attention from the center and the right. So we define a publication as center when it gets roughly equal numbers of retweets from Trump retweeters and Clinton retweeters. We define something as center-left when it's about two-thirds, one-third, and we define um, uh, things as left when they're uh, uh, more than a third, more than two-thirds Clinton, one-third Trump, etc. So What's missing in the map very clearly is a center left, a set of public, a center right, a set of publications that are right enough that they get more attention from the right, but left enough that they get some attention from the left doesn't exist. Whereas the New York Times, the Washington Post um, uh, are all defined by this attention as center left because they get a lot more attention from the left. So one thing that the network structure reveals quite clearly is that the center, the center-left, and the left are relatively tightly clustered. They seem to be quoted by the same people quite a bit, whereas the right is very distinct in its own insular uh, sphere. And it's further away from the center. And it's further away from the center than uh, the left and the center-left. And by further here, the the relevant measure is uh, how often are things retweeted on the same day by people, that is, which is a decent measure for how much they pay attention uh, to each of these sites. Um, so back to your question, what do we do? And who's the we in this case? I think the most immediate implication is to what we might call traditional professional journalists. Um, traditional professional journalists mostly are taught to be neutral, and that neutrality means giving the perspectives of both sides and giving both sides equal credibility in trying to investigate problems. The problem is that when you have one side that is so clearly committed to a uh, disinformation campaign that so often uses not explicitly false statements, But framings and headlines and picking and choosing components of true facts that when organized together give a misleading impression, then the role of the journalist needs to be um, more cautious. The baseline prior needs to be, if it's coming from this source, who's funding it? who's pushing it, before I begin to believe there's a real story there, I need to, um, I need to investigate. If, 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 basically, you need to shift from thinking of, if there's smoke, maybe there's fire. Your first thought needs to be, if the smoke is coming from there, maybe there's a smoke screen. And you need to investigate who created the smoke screen before you believe that there might be a fire. So, classic case study that our data really allows us to explore is Clinton Foundation. The Clinton Foundation supposed scandal of pay-for-play that as though when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, 
people who donated to the foundation got special uh, uh, care by the State Department, and people who wanted special care by the State Department needed to uh, 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 give money to the foundation. Um, became a big subject. We can identify, for example, in our data set, how many sentences uh, a day were dedicated to a given subject. So it's very clear when you look at the campaign that in August, right after the, the Kizer Khan, Gold Star family uh, issue that Trump had, suddenly the foundation issue came and dominated the discussion uh, over the course of, of August. What happened? Well, a year and a half, a year or more before, a year and a quarter before, a um, uh, a researcher funded by an organization funded by one of the most extreme funders uh, in the field, Robert Mercer, came out with a book called Clinton Cash. At roughly the same same time that he came out with a book called Bush Bucks, which was used to kill Jeb Bush's uh, nomination and had all sorts of stories about how the Bush family uh, made its uh, uh, political fortunes using Nazi money. Uh, Don't ask. Um, uh, Came out with this story. The New York Times came out with a story based on that research without really investigating where the money came from. And the story more or less died. And this is around April of 2015. Middle of July 2015, a few dozen Republicans send a letter to the commissioner of the IRS, to uh, the FBI, to the Department of Justice. Why don't you investigate these stories that are a year and a quarter ago? The IRS commissioner writes a polite letter back saying to these Republican uh, 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 representatives, thank you for your letter. I've referred it to the right, uh, uh, to, to the bureau that deals with this. Daily Caller comes out with a story and says, the IRS is investigating the Clinton Foundation. And the right wing sort of starts to retell uh, that story and repackage it. And suddenly you get this flowering of a story. A few days later, a super PAC, uh, a Trump super PAC, issues a, uh, a, um, uh, an ad on this, and Judicial Watch, which is funded by Mellon Scaife, another of the core major right-wing funders, comes out with a set of emails that supposedly identify the problems. Daily Caller continues to write things. So, for example, a story about the, the, the Clinton jet scam uses an email whose full text says, Bill Clinton regrets he won't be able to go to this, says, oh, he said thank you, because the regret was thank you for the offer, but they quote just the thank you for the offer. See, he's flying thousands of miles on this jet, and he doesn't disclose it on his tax returns. Now, the traditional media could have come back and said, there's a really juicy story here about Robert Mercer and and and, and Mellon Scaife and Judicial Watch and how this manipulation... It would have been every bit as sexy to write the story of right-wing manipulation. But instead, the Associated Press, the Times, the Washington Post start to dig into these emails to find a way of telling a story that nonetheless, maybe it at least smells. And then in paragraph 10, they say, well, there's no evidence here of actually anything that happened. It's only then, one of the things we do is we look at TV transcripts. So in the first round, you only get Fox News and Fox Business uh, and, and Fox local affiliates telling this story. By the time the Washington Post, two weeks later, the Washington Post and the New York Times and the Associated Press write about it, Suddenly, it's the CBS local station and the NBC local station and the PBS local station are also writing about it. So what you get is essentially a susceptibility of traditional professional media. It's like clickbait for professional media. Instead of thinking, where is the smoke screen coming from? They're going to look to tell the story of maybe there's fire. So one of the main things that needs to happen is that those traditional media that continue to be important for a large part of the population understand themselves not as though they're in the Washington Bureau, but they're in the Moscow Bureau. So that's interesting to me that you're kind of arguing for going back to or trusting on or relying on the mass media public sphere that you, you know, write about. That's something that belongs to the past. And I guess that's one of my uh, questions to you uh, as a follow-up question, because I don't know if the mass media even have that um, 
influence anymore because it's I, I'm, I'm just wondering if, if it's even possible to mediate the public discourse uh, as in the way you describe it anymore so I think that uh Even when I was writing in my most optimistic mode in 2006, uh, my claim was not that the majority of people would get their news no, that's true. from the network public sphere, but rather that that's where agendas could be framed. Yeah. Um, if you look at the Pew study uh, that came out after the election, there is no question Uh, so Trump voters got 40% of them treated Fox as their main news source. Another 8% um, um, or 7% or 8% uh, um, said Facebook. Another uh, 8% or so uh, CNN. Another 12% ABC, CBS, and NBC. And another few percent local TV. So you're still looking at over 60% of Trump voters getting their primary source of news from mass media. The same is true um, uh, on the left and, and, uh, and more generally. So, uh, and, and when you look at Facebook sharing, when you look at linking, when you look at tweeting, CNN and the New York Times and the Washington Post uh, are con and continue to be the media most people visit by page views, share by Facebook shares, retweet by tweets, um, particularly from the center to the, cent to, uh, uh, to the left. Um, Twitter and Facebook become much, much, much more significant for the right as the primary transmission uh, platform. But I would say even there, even there, one of the things that is, I think, quite clear from our study is just as the surveys confirm, most people continue to get their primary source of news not online, but from mass media. When they do go online, they often go to these sites as well, uh, to the sites of the traditional media. And so the traditional media continue to play a very powerful role. My claim about the network public sphere was that agenda setting, filtering, accreditation, critique could happen now in other places. When the traditional media got things wrong, there was room for decentralized critique. Uh, when a particularly in intensive political view or perspective took root, it could be brought to the media attention. But you can't expect that only things like Ferguson will be raised when the traditional media are ignoring it, but Um, um, uh, uh, white identity crisis won't. It doesn't work that way. So 2006, what a wonderful <laughs> journey back in time. Sunny, sunny days. Facebook was new. Uh, optimism was high. Um, I'd be interested to move a little ahead in time, sort of um, connect with your ideas um, how the anarchistic impulses that you found in the internet sphere could foster alternative thinking about institutions, which in a larger sense means states, state and market. Um, maybe you can elaborate a little of where this optimism came from, the, the philosophy of, or the belief in mutualism or peer production and, and how, as we started to talk about the shock that Brexit and Trump and nationalism, nationalist revival is, how that, that optimism Uh, hopefully can be rekindled or is, is still there. And can you also just say, so journalism is one answer uh, to the propaganda challenge, uh, just to tie into George's question, but what's, so that's the immediate answer, but what's the answer on like three to five years from, you know, from someone with, like you? So I think that the, these are, the big, deep, long-term questions. Let, let's be frank. Uh, we're not going to answer them in, in 15, 20 minutes, but let me try to sketch things out. So, first of all, rewinding 10, 15 years. Um, the thing I found most radically interesting about 
information, knowledge, and cultural production in the early 21st century was the possibility of social self-organization effectively producing economic goods without markets or hierarchies. This was exciting at the time because the prevailing way of thinking about economic production that was, let's call it, Washington Consensus. We talked about the epistemological crisis of 2008. But as of 2006, um, it still remained the basic idea that some more or less free market with a little bit of sprinkling regulation was the only way forward. There was essentially a one-right path to growth and, and opulence. There was an emerging uh, uh, um, diversity of capitalism's uh, literature, but very little. To me, what was so interesting about the work on the commons, the work on free and open source software, the work on Wikipedia, the work on peer production, was the possibility of re-embedding production in social relations and making it more human without losing the innovation and creativity that we found so attractive um, uh, as a co core component of, of growth in material well-being. So now we fast forward, and I'd say starting uh, maybe three or four years ago, um, there's a piece I did called Practical Anarchism, for example, where I start to look at this. Um, to say in 2006, Wikipedia and free software are a model, and then in 2014 to still be saying they're a model is problematic. Um, and I think one of the things that we saw was that the successful adoption of peer production and social production more generally as a model in many other spheres was um, curtailed and didn't work in all of the spheres. Instead, what we saw was the emergence of extractive models uh, what originally some people called sharing economy, I think on-demand economy, uh, platform economy is more likely. That's what we saw uh, emerging. And essentially, it's the continuation of the same neoliberal relations of oligarchic extraction applied to a low transaction cost area. So the same economics that I identified of tra low transaction cost economics allowing peer production also allow for um, um, precarious market relations as a uh, as an on-demand platform model. Um, and that's where it started going. But it happened in the post-Occupy period. And so what Occupy really offers a transition point where the Great Recession gets translated into an understanding that it's not just a bad management. It's something foundational about the entire system that's put in place uh, after 1980, after the 1970s, the Washington Consensus, let's call it uh, loosely, although that's no longer a real term that anybody adopts um, in actual policy, but it's very much of a, a, a decent reference for a zeitgeist. Um, okay, so what does that mean as a practical matter? I'd say one of the most interesting projects I can think of now is the Barcelona and the Commons project. Um, that's the effort of a municipality whose leading uh, party is committed to the commons formally in their, uh, uh, in their platform, trying to create an integrated solution that includes both what's the best of what government can do. Because one of the things we, once you read Piketty and Saez and you understand the amount of extraction that's already happened. You cannot leave the state out of the solution because you will need to tax those extracted values back in to the public, and you're not going to be able to just leave them as they are. There are no solutions without the state because you need the taxing power and you need the ability to disrupt the oligarchic power that's developed over the last 40 years. So you have to have some close relation with the state, but you can't lean too much on it because we know its limitations. So the idea of creating the taxing power of the state, the ability of the state to redistribute, together with some businesses, but also most importantly here, and what's get brought in from social production and peer production, 
commons-based production, whether it's in cooperative ownership of distressed uh, buildings, whether it's in uh, 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 whether it's in constructing cooperative or commons-owned services. Uh, so that's one class of solutions. And Barcelona, I think, now is part of a network of cities calling themselves rebel cities that are beginning to try to do that, have the democratic control be at a sufficiently low level that it is still responsive to its population, and have it focused not just on either government control or perfecting markets, but also providing a platform for social peer production-based engaged models. So that's one class of answers. I think the platform cooperativism movement that Trevor Schultz and Nathan Schneider began to write about and have really been pushing in the last couple of years uh, is a very promising component. I don't think it's the whole solution, but it's a component. I think we've learned from the hundred and so and some years of the cooperative movement that it is neither a panacea nor a failure. Where it where it successfully takes root, it offers uh, more stability for workers, not necessarily higher wages, but more stability, uh, a better sense of identity, if you will, the core components of happiness, productive, stable, meaningful work, uh, rather than necessarily making a lot more money. So cooperativism, there's no particular reason why Uber should be owned by the venture capitalists as opposed to by some combination of the drivers and the riders. Uh, so there's some talk about Twitter doing this. It's, it's part of the story. Uh, if I were to step back, I would say the critical lesson of network analysis, learning networks, uh, complexity, is that we have to move from one single optimal answer the Weberian state, the Hayekian market, uh, the Proudhonian uh, uh, um, uh, peer mutualism, to the diversity of mix and match, of, and very practical. In this regard, a much more uh, pragmatist approach, not in the sense of without uh, normative commitments, but in the sense of communities of practice learning together what works, rough consensus and running code without being dogmatic about any of it and understanding that you need a diversity of solutions. Some of it will be more state-based, some of it will be more market-based, some of it will be cooperative, some of it will be peer production purely based on on, um, uh, social relations. Um, And I think that model, once you combine it with 3D printing, uh, once you combine it with um, 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 networks that allow people to come together uh, on demand, um, 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 but not based in extractive relations, begins to offer a real solution, begins to offer a real solution. So Jerry Davis from University of Michigan, for example, is doing a lot of work now in Detroit, looking at the way in which just the fact that Detroit became such a profoundly depressed economic area has actually allowed a good bit of creativity now locally in terms of taking over building, taking over plots for urban farming, but also maker spaces with 3D printing. At the moment, this is still 1970s personal computers, and it might not develop. But if you, if I had to say what is the solution of the left, or not what is the solution, but where is the space in which the left can look for a solution for how do we re-embed economic production in social relations in a way that is not nostalgic to some pastoral past, but actually focuses on innovation, improving quality of living, engaging people in real creative uh, uh, work, that's the space. I think of it as an open social economy. I think of it epistemologically as being going beyond either the command and control or the market to a diversity of learning approaches in community of practice. And I see it as a move from just focusing on one mode of production into diversity and mix and match, which won't necessarily be the same in every place because culture matters and people's norms matter and not 
every model can work everywhere in the same way based on what values people bring to what it is that they want out of it. That's what we're going to have to learn in order to create for a wider population an answer to the question, who am I and is my work any good? We cannot have the answer be, your identity is no good and your work's no good, live with it, here's a little bit of universal basic income. It has to be that my work is meaningful with people with whom I can find meaning in a way that actually feeds me. See, I needed that. Thank you. Yeah, I needed that too, especially today. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you. My pleasure. This was Anger Management, the Democracy Podcast in cooperation with 60 Hertz, Berlin Community Radio, Aftenbladet and the Neiman Foundation. Today's guest was Jochen Benkler of Harvard. Tune in next week with Daniel Allen.